Hello, welcome to My Camino, the podcast. I'm Dan Mullins, and I'm delighted you've taken the time to listen. First up, a very warm thank you to my Patreon sponsors. If you're interested in sponsoring me, I'm doing an online concert purely for my sponsors on Sunday, May the 22nd, which will be Saturday evening in North America. I've put a link in the show notes to take you to the page where you can sponsor me, patreon.com forward slash Dan Mullins. We're drifting toward winter here in Australia. Not that we have a very demanding winter here in Sydney. It's a very mild climate. Very rarely would we ever get to zero even. But I've toyed with the idea of walking a winter Camino. Indeed, when Bill and Jennifer Bennett and I shot the film clip for Somewhere Along the Way, the Camino song, it was late April. It was very cold on the Camino. There was snow in Burgos and snow on the Meseta. So we're going to talk about winter Caminos this week, and we'll get to that discussion in a moment. But first... This is a podcast about El Camino de Santiago, or the way of St. James. Pilgrims walk alone or in groups, hoping to make their way to a crypt housing the remains of Christ's apostle St. James in the Spanish city of Santiago de Compostela, St. James under a field of stars. I've only walked two Caminos. I walked maybe a mile or two when we shot that video back in 2018. Don't think it quite constitutes a Camino. And I'm told the Camino is very busy this year. Border and travel restrictions are all but gone. And unfortunately, there are lots of albergues and small businesses along the way that didn't survive COVID. So there are not as many places to stay. But let's hope it can one day return to its full vigour and vitality. Just this week, I had lunch with a friend from school. and He was visiting Sydney and we quickly slid back into our friendship of old. It was nice to be in the company of someone who knows you so well that you can truly relax. We all build an identity. We shape ourselves or our view of ourselves, the view others see, and sometimes the real us, you and me, is kind of hidden. And that's a great shame, or maybe the real you or me wants to remain hidden. To meet that person would fill us with dread. Well, I think of the almost 280 episodes of podcasts I've conducted here, coming up to six years, I'm constantly reminded of pilgrims who found themselves on the Camino. I often ask, did you like what you found? And inevitably they say, yes, even if, as many concede, they've made mistakes. They've hurt people. They've not been their best selves, the best version of who or what they want to be. But perhaps, if by accepting your mistakes, your stumbles and even falls, and then forgiving yourself, telling yourself not to dwell on the past, but to look forward to joys and triumphs to come, the new you will step up, will emerge, will envisage a brighter future. And it's not just you who will get to bask in that brighter light, but those around you too, those you love and who love you. But first, the courage to forgive ourselves. Well, the Camino is a great place to start. St. Francis of Assisi, who himself walked part of the Camino, said... It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. My guest this week has walked two winter Caminos and one in spring. I'm intrigued by the concept of a winter walk when it's perhaps not so crowded. Jordan Ozero is on the line from Canada. Welcome, Pilgrim. Hey, Dan. Thanks for having me. I'm really looking forward to our talk today. Yeah. How's life in Canada post-COVID, man? Well, we're coming out of it, I think, pretty much like the rest of the world. And uh, spring here is uh, really quite magnificent right now. So a lot of people out and really enjoying the weather and trying to find a little normalcy again. Yeah. Tell us a little bit about yourself. What do you do? Where do you live? Well, I'm on Vancouver Island on the west coast of Canada. A little town called Nanus Bay, which um, if you uh, don't concentrate, you'll drive right past us. Uh, But I've worked uh, abroad for the last 20 years. I'm a veteran of the cruise industry. And uh, in my time off, I've had the good fortune to uh, be introduced to the Camino and spend um, uh, three tries on it. Right on. The cruise industry. So I'm imagining the cruise industry has been completely wiped out, has it? 
Well, it, it sure was. I uh, stepped off a ship on March 5th, uh, two years ago. And uh, today, I think about 95% of the ships are back online and uh, sailing oh. around the world. Some are still a little restricted, but it's uh, going and uh, it's exciting for the industry to be back. There's a lot of pent up demand for it. Yeah, good luck to them. Good luck to them because people who love to cruise certainly love to cruise. You're doing a thesis at the moment on the Camino and the phenomenon of transformative tourism. Now, I haven't heard that term before. Is that a new term to describe a very old pastime? I don't think it's uh, particularly new. I, I think it's been the framework for a lot of uh, thesis. My uh, master's is in uh, tourism management. So I really, uh, I went back to the original tourism. That was uh, religious tourism. Um, you know, we're back hundreds of years ago when people started touring the world, or at least uh, the continent. Nor normally it was Europe. And uh, I've tried to put a modern spin on it. Um, as as all your listeners will know, uh, the, the Camino goes back about 1,200 years, and it was predominantly a religious uh, event in the life of people. But over the last 20, 30 years, there's been a pretty significant shift away from religious motivation into what is sort of termed spiritual, or uh, it can be entirely secular in the motivation now. So that's the, the spin I've taken, is really trying to understand what... Um, catalysts exist on the Camino that uh, really inspire people to go there and to have uh, what we would call a transformative event uh, take place on the Camino. So when you study this, what are you trying to eventually produce? What will, will it be an opinion piece or will it be a kind of explainer? What will you end up with? Well, I think with this uh, this research paper, it'll be more aimed towards a case study, mm. and it'll be uh, information and research that has been put together through uh, literature reviews. Uh, I'll be doing some digital ethnography, uh, you know, in today's world. Um, social media is a, a great influencer in um venue for sharing information. So gathering that uh, that ethnography through the digital means will be an important piece. And then I'm uh, going to do a series of uh, interviews. There's no shortage of people out there that uh, love to talk about the Camino experience. <laughs> so I'm looking forward to, to having that opportunity to really get into what uh, experiences they had and, and what brought about those transformations in their own life. Just take a step back. What is ethnography? Uh, what you're looking at there is really the the environment of the people, what they're going through. Uh, so ethnographers, typically um, you're dealing with the field of anthropology where uh, scientists will go in and study people and, and environments and societies and cultures. Uh, so I'm taking that uh, sort of spin because I think the Camino is really about the people and looking at the culture of, of the Camino and what aspects and attributes it has that can have a profound effect on people. Mm, wow. I mentioned in the, the introduction about forgiveness. Um, to me, it's a very important aspect of transforming. There's no point papering over the cracks. Um, if you're going to hope for change, you need to acknowledge that perhaps you need to change. Um, what have you learned about the process of transformation in the journey of your study? Well, I'll tell you, Dan, you can read about it, but I, I think you have to experience it. Um, and because I've been on the Camino a few times and, and gone through some personal transformation, it really gave me that insight that it was there, it was relevant, and a lot of people want to know about it. So it, it really fills a gap in research that hasn't really been explored uh, huh. in academia. Wow. I imagine everybody's story is different, yet I'm sure there's also a familiarity to everyone's journey. Would that be fair to say? 100%. 
absolutely 100% because we can we can get to a point of data saturation where we interview 20 30 40 people and you'll see very strong common threads um, emerge as you do these interviews but to each one of them it's it's unique and personal um, from an overarching view, you'll certainly see trends. I, I have no doubt I'll find those in my research, but um, it certainly is a, a personal journey that uh, maybe millions have gone before you, but it's still your first time. So it's it's still very relevant. Hmm. Yeah. Well, that's certainly been my experience here. I, I could do another 500 interviews it fascinates me everybody it really does i just think it's it's terrific um i generally record on the weekends i in this go up into my studio at home and and you know might do two or three even four interviews back to back and by the end of the day i'm like wow they were so varied and so incredibly different stories yet all on the same path and that is just sure. it's, it's astounding. And you can usually pick a little of yourself out of all that too. Of course, you can. It's so easy for us to relate to them uh, because, you know, everyone has commonalities, and and to find those connections, I think that's what makes the Camino so special. Is as you bond to people over these connections that you form and the commonalities you have, regardless of the language you speak, your religion, where you live. Uh, and that's one of the true magical things about the Camino. Sure is. Wow. One of the other great things about the Camino is the is the walking. So it's the get up every day, um, walk, eat, sleep, repeat. What about the physical nature of pilgrimage? Have you done any research or, or learned any insight how the effort required to walk, say, the Camino, where you'd expect to walk 20 or 30 kilometers a day. How does that effort contribute to transformation? I think it's a, a profound part of the Camino experience. Um, you know, pilgrimage can have uh, many formats. Uh, there's nothing um, wrong with flying to a location like uh, Jerusalem or Rome and, and being on pilgrimage. But I think when you add in that element of the physical effort, um, I believe there's a, a strong meditative uh, aspect to walking that allows us to, to get away from the conscious and slip into the subconscious. Um, and I think that's one of the things that makes it uh, a little unique from other pilgrimages. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. What other forms of transformative tourism are there? Well, you can look at a lot of things in the broad spectrum of, of transformative tourism. Um, in my industry, uh, when I was on the cruise ships, for an average person who's never traveled abroad a lot, they get the opportunity to step on a ship and go to five countries over the course of a week. That exposure, that uh, acknowledgement of different cultures and different ways uh, transforms people. So whenever we step outside of our norm, and that's you know, really the definition of tourism, is when we leave our immediate area for a non-work purpose and explore new areas, or even if it's um, you know, longer term, like maybe a, a work contract, we're still getting out of our normal. And when we go and do in those areas, we can't help but be transformed at some level. Is it conscious? Maybe not. But uh, maybe that's the differentiation between regular tourism and the Camino or religious tourism is that we go often with the understanding or hope or desire that we will have a transformative effect or event. <laughs> wow, that's fascinating. I love that. Let me ask you some, a personal question, Jordan. Are you re religious? I don't think I am, Dan. Uh, I I certainly fall into the agnostic category in most senses, but I, I'm not going to say I'm there 100% because when I go to the Mass, which I attend often during my Caminos, uh, I can't help but feel moved by that. And um, 
you know, I'm, I'm deep enough in the agnostic camp that uh, I still need a little more to, to get me to that level that I would call myself a religious person. But um, I certainly have feelings when I'm taking part in the Camino. Yeah, good answer. I, and I ask that question because I saw recently that you posted on a Camino group that I'm also a member of, that you're researching what involvement, both financial and non-financial, the Catholic Church has on the Camino, aside from the pilgrim office and the relics within the cathedral in Santiago de Compostela. Tell us about that aspect of your research. Well, that was that was sort of a, an earlier iteration of my thesis work where I was I was looking at a slightly different angle, but it still fascinates me. And I've had some very good uh, conversations with people, um, a gentleman you know well, John Rafferty. Um, mm. You know, we've we've had that discussion and and tried to understand, or I've tried to understand, uh, really what the involvement with the church is outside of those those immediate places, like the the cathedral in Santiago with the relics, like the uh, pilgrim office, and uh, it's really uh, an interesting idea because. Unlike so many things in life, the Camino isn't a, a tangible place. It isn't uh, regulated by anybody. Uh, so it's kind of a unique idea uh, that it's a heritage site, per se, from the United Nations, but mm -hmm. it's not uh, a managed site. Uh, no one has uh, ownership over that domain. So sort of understanding a little deeper how the uh, the church is involved is, is still um, important to my research. I'd imagine, though, it would be almost endless research, wouldn't it? I mean, we're talking, like you said, 1,200 years. There's intrigue and corruption. I mean, just walking through a cathedral like the one in Leon blows your mind. I mean, and Burgos, forget about that. You could, you could virtually research it forever, couldn't you? Uh, I believe many people do. Um, <laughs> yeah. Unfortunately, with my research, I have to limit the scope. And that's probably the hardest part for me, Dan, is, is really narrowing that scope enough to keep it to a single topic. Uh, maybe when I go on and do my doctoral dissertation, I'll be given a little more latitude. But um, yeah, it's, it is fascinating. I mean, you think about Burgos being constructed over three, four hundred years and uh, the changes in the world during the construction of a cathedral. Uh, your mind has trouble getting around that. What I find difficult to work out is what or when they said it's finished. Like, <laughs> right after 300 and something years, one day someone says, I think we'll be finished this tomorrow. Yeah, fair enough. I think they just ran out of real estate is the problem. Right. Yeah, right. It's an amazing place. Amazing. And the Cathedral in Leon, I have, there's a little cafe directly opposite it, um, diagonally opposite, and the pilgrims come up the street and into uh, the albergues. There's a couple of albergues lining this street there, and I often sit there and just look at the cathedral because it's truly one of the most beautiful buildings I've ever seen. But you were lucky enough to be there, and I'm fascinated by this, during a blood moon. Yeah, that was a, a fun night. And um, one of my uh, real passions in life is photography. And uh, I was, you know, when you walk a Camino, of course, you can't help yourself to some degree for counting the ounces. And when you're carrying a, a six-pound uh, camera and regretting the fact you didn't have an extra four-pound lens to capture the moon, <laughs> you know you've got it bad. <laughs> Those photographs are unbelievable in your blog they are just stunning oh what a night that must have been you know it, it was beautiful but uh that particular night the the moon was great the cathedral was great i've sat in that same cafe that you have eating gelato on the corner there yeah yeah, yeah. but uh honestly the most exciting part of that night was was not the the moon or the cathedral. It was the fact I ran into a, a young Australian woman uh, and an American pilgrim, and she and I had uh, met online on uh, Ivar's uh, Camino Forum website and been talking about Winter Camino. And lo and, whole, lo and behold, I, I meet her in Roncesvalles, and then uh, again I meet her in Lyon, and the chance to, to see someone that you've chatted with online from around the world uh, to me, that was an amazing experience. Wow, that's fantastic. 
All right, let's talk about Winter Caminos, 2014 and 2018. You sent me the picture of a sign outside Roncesvalles. Everybody knows it, 790 kilometres to Santiago de Compostela. The snow is three or four feet deep. Tell us, Jordan, what happens when you can't walk the actual Camino because there's too much snow? Yeah, well, um, it's happened to me a number of times over the years. Uh, It was actually 2013 I walked the first one, and I left from St. jean Pied-de-Port. And the first half of the uh, the Camino, uh, sorry, of that stage was green and beautiful. I thought this is great. Uh, reminded me a lot of uh, back home. And uh, shortly after Val Carlos, because of course the Napoleon route is closed. Mm. Uh, shortly after Val Carlos, I take off into the alternate route up through the the trees, and the first couple of uh, snowflakes appear. About a half hour later. I was over my knees deep in snow and going up an incredibly steep section under the power lines. And I thought, oh, my God, what have I done? Um, You know, this is now actually bordering on dangerous. So uh, at that point, I got to the end of that trail and I I zigzagged up the road all the way to Roncesvalles from from that point on. And, um, you know, one of the, the fun things about Spaniards is, uh, they all have the DNA of a Grand Prix driver, and uh, the snow doesn't slow them down a mile per hour. They they drive very fast. So I would have um, my head on a swivel, and whichever side of the road they were on, I would jump immediately to the other side and, and get off as far as I could. But um, you really have no choice uh, going over the Pyrenees and a few other places where you have to just abandon the Camino trails and just stick to the hardtop. Right. And so then I suppose the problem then becomes that you, there won't necessarily be albergues in the towns that you're in. So you've got to sort of get back to the Camino eventually. There was never really a point where I couldn't uh, be in the town or city that I wanted to be in. Okay. So my diversions, you know, the road effectively takes you to the same place as sure. the Camino Trail. Sure. So um, it was winter, of course, so uh, a lot of albergues are closed. But the reality is that um, I got to those towns safely and I never had uh, but maybe one night uh, where I had to move to a different town. I was always able to find accommodation. And were they albergues that you stayed in always or pensions or or hotels? A little bit of a mix in the winter months. Right. Um, you know, I've I've uh, lived and died by the Briarly Guide, and uh, always been thankful for his contributions because the albergues and the phone numbers he puts in there are updated every year. And uh, there was really no difficulty getting on the phone and calling ahead to find an open albergue. Um, you know, I, as I say, maybe one town. Uh, I couldn't find the one that said it was open. It was was not open. And so I just walked another four kilometers down the road and found one that was open. So, um, you know, 300,000 people won't be able to do it in winter because most of the places do shut down. But for the 10 or 12 of us that I met on the Camino, uh, there was never a problem at all. Right, that was my next question. Did you see many other people? 10 or 12, that's not many at all. No, not the first year. Well, I walk in January, right? So um, if you look at the the bar graph of when people walk the Camino, you have those great big lines in June, July, August, September, and there's a little pencil mark at the bottom of January that (laughs) says, uh, you know, Jordan walk then. Um, It's really a quiet time. So when you walk in spring or summer, you can stop every half hour basically for coffee or food or beer or whatever you want. What about in winter? It needs a lot more planning. And uh, with with a big part of your gear, uh, you have to plan very differently. Now, one of the biggest surprises I had uh, that uh, totally uh, went over my head when I was preparing was the lack of water. Um, you know, uh, spring, summer, and fall peregrinos, they're, they're used to having water all over the place, good public fountains with clean yeah. drinking water. But in the winter, they shut all those off. Uh, they don't want the pipes to crack. Oh. So a lot of places I went to, and I knew there would be water ahead, there was no water. 
Uh, I knew there was a little tienda I had, and they were closed. So I, there was points uh, going up Alto del Perdon, for example, mm. where I had to take a bunch of snow and put it in my uh, canteen or my um, my drinking container and work to uh, melt it so I could actually get some hydration in me because that whole day between Pamplona and Puente Lorena, there wasn't a, a single place I could get water. Wow. Okay, so one of the things that is is great about the the Frances in spring and summer is that you, if you think, oh, I've got a bad blister, okay, there might not be a pharmacy in this little town, but there'll be one in the bigger town or even the city a day or so later. Were the cities and, and the bigger towns, towns like Astorga and and I suppose Lorogno, were they open and trading as normal? Yeah, there was no problem with that. Right. Um, if you're looking at the small little towns like um, like a Val Carlos or yeah. a Azqueta, uh these places you could run into those kind of problems. But as soon as you're in a bigger town or a city, um, you know the the locals still have their pharmacies, yeah, uh, their restaurants, their bars. So that was normal enough. the The challenge might be when they're open. You know, they don't have the same hours available to us. But at some point during the day, if you're desperate, they will be open and, and it's up to you to figure that out. Yeah, right. Yeah, because sometimes you might have another couple of days of of painkillers left and you know, they'll, well, I'll buy some today, so I'll wait for the <laughs> pharmacy to open. <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. So we talked before about um, forward planning. What about before you arrived in Spain? Did you plot out, you know, okay, well, I'll stay here on this day, I'll stay here on that day, I'll stay here on this day? Or because of the nature of uh, snow and the uncertainty of which and where you're going to travel, you sort of had to do it on the run? My first Camino in 2013, I didn't have a lot of background. Um, I hadn't uh, found the Camino Forum website at that point. And I was I was pretty much reliant on Briarley's guidebook. Mm. So, you know, I know it's a, a popular theme now to not stay in his um, endpoints, but uh, I took that as as my gospel. You know, yeah. <laughs> Briarley says, "Thou shall go to Roncesvalles, then I shall go there." <laughs> um, and you know, that made it easy. Uh, being a Canadian growing up, walking in the mountains with my dad all the time, uh, snow was not new to me by any means and hiking certainly wasn't new to me. So, uh, that I would walk 20 or 25 kilometers in foul weather really wasn't too much of an issue. So mm. it was, it was something I was easily able to, to deal with. And I, I just used Briarley's book and that really helped get me, uh, right across the country. So what about the simple things like keeping your feet dry? I, uh, I'm a West Coaster. Uh, one of the great things about the West Coast is it doesn't get real cold, but it gets real wet here. So all my gear uh, was designed uh, to deal with that. And I, I also took a bit of a belt and suspender uh, philosophy with me too in the first one. So I had a, a great Gore-Tex uh, raincoat. I had great Gore-Tex rain pants and great Gore-Tex boots. Um, and then on top of that, I, I took an extra um, rain, uh, waterproof poncho. So uh, wet really wasn't much of a problem for me the whole way. Is it slippery? <laughs> it, it, some places are crazy. I, I ended up on my butt a couple of times yeah. on the first one. Um, black ice. Um, and the leaves coming are very down slippery. Alto del Perdon was mm. crazy. Yeah, uh, yeah. There was a bunch of places it was pretty bad, and and that was a learning experience. And the the next winter when I went on, my wife said, "You're you're taking your ice trekkers," and I I objected a bit at first because I just didn't want the weight of having to carry something I was going to use three or four times. And in the end, she was absolutely right. Um, I ended up using them a lot more than I thought I would. And 
it's sort of the theme of a winter Camino is you have to think differently, you have to pack differently, uh, and you just have to be prepared for those kind of events without, you know, carrying your fears. You don't um, want to go overboard with it, but there are certain elements that you're out there by yourself a lot more. So you need to be a little more self-sufficient and, and maybe be a little more cautious than you would if you went other times of the year. Yeah, yeah. And you just mentioned there that you had to take extra gear. Um, So how much heavier was your backpack in the winter Camino as compared to the spring Camino? Well, I'm almost embarrassed to tell you the first one, uh, but I was well over 30 pounds on my first winter Camino. Right. Um, I, uh, I was introduced to the Camino by Martin Sheen and Emilio Estevez, and uh, I was prepared to not die in the Pyrenees. And that meant I, I took a waterproof bivy with me. I had uh, crampons for my boots. I, you know, I, I was loaded for bear. So that first pack was probably about 34 or 35 pounds. Wow. Um, by the time I got to Lagroño, I jettisoned about 10, 12 pounds ahead to Santiago. Um, so I, I think it's a, not an uncommon thing when people go for the first time and you're a little unsure and you, you err on the side of caution. Yeah. So if you are walking in inclement weather, um, and even though you are decked out, how hard is it to dry your clothes in the evening to be, to, to be fresh and dry when you kick off again the next day? Mm. I didn't find that really much of a challenge, to be honest, because the the Gore-Tex gear, you hang it up uh, by the de- door anyway. The, the albergue people don't want you bringing all the wet gear in. So that dries off and it drips, dries easily overnight. And, you know, I think... Uh, when you focus on layering up over the uh, over your body with a base layer, a thermal layer, um, you might have to swap out your base layer more often, but your thermal layer isn't going to get wet. Um, and as long as you use the right gear, you know, I use uh, normally a thin weight merino gear in the winter for base layers. And it dries remarkably well, uh, no odors to speak of at all. And uh, just really convenient. So if you're walking, let's say you're going to walk 20 kilometers in a day and you've got all that gear on, aren't you getting very hot underneath it all? I mean, you're walking, you're walking and you're strenuously walking because you're carrying a very heavy pack. Yeah, and I I think that goes back to my upbringing. Um, Because I spent so much time in the mountains with my dad growing up that – heat management is just something that becomes uh, instinctual. As you get a little warm, things get taken off, zippers opened, and you never really allow that heat to build up to a point of perspiration. Um, as it cools off, it's easy to slip a layer back on. And and I guess that's really the, the crux of the difference between a, a summer Camino and a winter Camino. Yeah. Summer, you throw your shorts and t-shirt on, and that's how it is all the way to the end of the day. But uh, winter Camino, some days I started off, it was minus four, minus five Celsius. So you had to start with a little extra warmth underneath. And maybe after a kilometer or two, you have to stop, drop your pack, take off a layer, walk another few kilometers. As the temperature comes up, you're taking off another layer and and you just adjust throughout the day. But um, you know, anyone that spent any time in cold weather knows the worst possible thing you can do is perspire. Uh, that's the, the f- quickest way to hypothermia. Yeah, right. So how mindful do you have to be of the weather? Are you constantly checking to make sure that you're not going to get snowed in? Or is it even a possibility anywhere other than, say, Osobrero? Uh, are, you, are you always mindful of it? Uh, I, I think that's a good practice, uh, personally. I'm, and I say that because uh, people listening might not be experienced in in that kind of climate. Um, if it's your first time in that kind of climate, having a good weather app, watching the morning news before you leave a place, if you go to the bar for a coffee in the morning, and just getting a sense of what's ahead is is pretty important. If you're thinking about some of the stretches like um, 
maybe Burgos to Hontanas or Carrion de la Condes to Santo Domingo de la Cueza. Uh, these are long stretches. Yeah. And in the winter, you're almost guaranteed to see nobody. So if, if God forbid anything isn't great out there, you're kind of on your own. So a little planning is smart. Having the right gear is smart. And, and being cognizant of your surroundings is always a, an important part. Did you have to take emergency supplies with you? Did you always have food with you just in case? Always. And it wasn't a lot. You know, I would have a few bullion cubes and a, a pack of dry noodles. Uh, from that, you've got a, a chicken noodle soup. All it takes is a pot and a little bit of boiling water. Uh, maybe a dried chorizo and a little bag of nuts. And you don't need a lot. Even in, in really dire circumstances, you don't need a lot. Uh, you just need enough to keep the fires burning, and uh, the next day you'll you'll deal with that. I can remember one stretch um, coming, I guess it was up to Osobrero, nothing was open. Mm. No tiendas, no restaurants. Uh, the uh, municipal albergue was a self-serve event at that point, and uh, so I went without dinner. And I couldn't find a place to eat for um, about three quarters of the next day uh, until I found a place open. So, you know, my little chicken noodle soup and a handful of uh, roasted nuts. And uh, that's enough to get you by. It's yeah. not great, uh, but it's all you need. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So because there were fewer places open, uh, did it cost you more, the Winter Camino? I guess I don't have a true basis of comparison there. Um, having just walked once in the spring with my wife, we um, I didn't see a big difference between spring prices and winter prices. Um, in the big cities, I would always stock up in grocery stores. There was always a dia, and every dia I hit, I ended up with a, a cold roasted chicken, and that would last me for days. And so... I, I don't think it was any more expensive, to be yeah. honest. Yeah, right. Okay. Well, that's great. Yeah, actually, I, I was reading your blog and you said, um, and you talked about your cameras. Mrs. Peregrina says the next Camino will be photo free. <laughs> the photos are beautiful. You can tell it's a very nice camera. One of the photos you, is from the Meseta and the planted forest. And you say the OCD in you loves the forest, but the, the son of the lumberman couldn't get over them being lined up in such perfect order. Yeah, I think with, with those, um, they're a crop. And, and uh, out here in Canada, we don't really have uh, specific tree crops like they do, where they're having a, a short growth period and harvesting and replanting. Uh, you know, our trees out here grow for hundreds of years and they grow wherever they want. <laughs> um, so that that was kind of an interesting place for me to see. I'd never seen that before and um, it took me quite a while. I don't know if I'm used to it yet, to be honest. <laughs> so we've talked about transformative um, tourism and and the changes that the Camino can bring to us. What about transformation for you, Jordan? What sort of change have you encountered yourself? I think that was that was really the driver for my my first Camino back in 2013. Uh, I mentioned that uh, for 20 years I've worked on cruise ships, and for anyone that's been on one, you'll know that uh, you're surrounded by anywhere from two to six or seven thousand people on a, a floating steel ship. Um, the life of a, a worker on the cruise ship is quite different than than people understand. I think. You, you work every single day for your entire contract. So there's no days off. Um, in my position, I was typically working 11, 12, 13 hours a day um, and responsible for quite a bit of the operation going on on board. So uh, I'd done that for years and the cumulative stress uh, that had built up in me uh, over that period was, was quite significant. And I was really in a, a burnout stage uh, personally. And I think that was uh, really 
it struck me when I saw that movie, the way the, you know, I watched the character of Tom evolve and, and how he really changed himself entirely different circumstances, of course, but uh, seeing that evolution and, and his character really spoke to me and it, it put me on the Camino and, I had a choice. I could do it in the winter or I could wait six months and I could have done it in, in July. And I, I chose winter after some, some brief uh, research on the Camino because I wanted the time alone. And it was the first time in, at that point in probably 10 or 12 years that I hadn't been around people and a lot of people. And, and having that opportunity to to spend time with myself and, and listen to nothing, you know, just nature. Um, you know, I really tried my very best to not be on any devices or watch any TV for the entire Camino. Um, and that one, I, I just uh, wrote my blog in a, not a blog, I wrote my journal uh, on a, a, in a book with a pen because uh, I didn't even want to, you know, blog anything electronically on that one. And I think that was uh, a significant uh, experience in my life. And I don't know how many people need it, but uh, I think there's a lot of people that do, and they don't necessarily know that it's there or the benefits of having that kind of long-term experience where uh, you can really allow yourself to change, to, to find out things about yourself and let them come up, uh, bubble up from deep within, uh, because you get rid of all the external stimuli. Uh, you don't have to worry about day-to-day work issues. Your biggest concern is, is walking, eating, washing your clothes and, and going to sleep. And when you rinse and repeat over and over and over, it, it takes that element of your life away and it, it really allows you to, uh, to let change happen. And I think that's that catalyst that I spoke of for my research work that I want to delve into a lot deeper. And did that surprise you, that this change in you? No one was more surprised than me, I, I guarantee you that. Um, and I think it's when, when these kind of stresses build up in life, it's not noticeable easily. You know, you, mm. um, it builds up slowly, incrementally. And, it, you know, it's sort of like putting on a new pair of shoes. It isn't until you try the new shoes on that you realize how poor the old ones were. And I think our lives are like that until we have a chance to rejuvenate, like really rejuvenate and really replenish our energy and build up our strength again. It isn't until that point that we realize how beaten down we were. Uh, And I think that's uh, one of the great uh, bits of magic on the Camino. Do you think it's for everyone, the Camino? I've not yet anyone uh, met anyone that isn't. Um, I've been invited to uh, do lectures on the Camino, and um, I've talked to husbands who were reluctant to come, uh, come up to me at the end and say, this was everything I didn't know I needed. So um, I mm. think it is for everyone. I think uh, the Camino is so diverse, and the way you can approach it is unique. Um, you know, thinking back to Hap Kirkling's book, I'm Off Then, he talks about a, a couple who she would walk a few kilometers a day and the husband would uh, gently and patiently wait in the car for her to arrive. And, you know, that's how she worked her way across Spain. And I think there's something something there for everybody. And I, I just can't imagine who couldn't benefit at some level from the Camino. And I suppose that leads perfectly into my next question. What about if you don't want to change? If you don't want to be transformed? Can can it be for some people that they are transformed against their will almost? I'm not sure. Um, you know, of course, I, I haven't been in that pair of shoes, so it's hard for me to be to be certain. But I think the, the very physical act and the routine, um, it brings something out that we don't necessarily understand or know. Uh, it just happens. It's, mm. a, it's a transformation in itself. And I think, um, you know, not everyone needs to change. 
there are a lot of uh, normal, high-functioning people in the world that are very happy with their lives, and uh, this is uh, a vacation for them. So, you know, not everyone goes through that level of transformation, but uh, as I said in the beginning, whenever we get away from the normal and we experience new things, to some degree, we are transformed. So you may not want it, but I, I think to some degree, it'll still happen. Yeah. How fantastic, Jordan. My gosh, this is such a great chat with you, such great insight. So what's next on the horizon for the Camino for you? Are you going back again? Are you going to carry a camera again? What's next? Well, it depends if I'm going by myself or with my wife. So, um, (laughs) you know, if I go by myself, the camera will come with because uh, I do uh, love capturing that and sharing that. That brings a lot of joy to me and to the people I share with. Um, I, I can't imagine a, a life without the Camino in, in the future. Um, oddly enough, I don't have a great desire like some to explore every single Camino route. Um, people ask me where next and I, I kind of default back to the Camino Frances. Um, it's everything I need and everything I want, yeah. um, you know, I don't speak fluent Spanish by by any stretch, so I I have some hesitation to going some of the more remote routes where you're. It's from the understanding I have. You're asking people, do you mind if I sleep in your house tonight? Um, you know, and as a, an English speaker, I think that would be a little awkward. You know, the Camino Francis provides everything I need. The distance, the the people on it are are wonderful people. So uh, there's definitely more Camino in my future, and um, you know the phone is still debatable, the camera is still debatable. <laughs> okay, one last question. Tell us a Camino story. <laughs> okay, well, you know it's always nice to make other people feel good about themselves. So uh, my story. Uh, is on day one of my first Camino, 2013. Um, you know, I've gone to great lengths to tell you I grew up in the mountains and I knew how to navigate in the, the wilderness. So day one comes and I'm leaving St. John Port. I'd met a couple of chaps. One was from Italy and one was from Portugal. And uh, the Italian was on his third or fourth Camino at that time. So I was hanging off his every word. I mean, this is great. I have someone that knows things. It takes a lot of the insecurity away. So off we set at about 7.30 in the morning from the municipal municipal albergue. And uh, being um, January, of course, we're taking the Val Carlos route. And for the people familiar... Um, about one and a half kilometers outside of St. Jean, you have to cut across a bridge to get off the highway and to go up the route on the other side of the river. And uh, I'd searched ahead a little bit, and I was, uh, it's still dark at this point, and I was stopping to take a quick break, and the Italian and the Portuguese man caught up to me. And I'm looking at my guidebook thinking, well, I, I should probably turn here, but the Italian says, no, no. Definitely, we're going straight ahead. You see that little red and white mark on that post? That means we're on the right route. I'm like, oh, well, third time. Can't be wrong. Yeah. So we um, we keep hiking, and it's a beautiful walk. Oh, God. You know, beautiful country roads up in the mountains of the Pyrenees. Uh, couldn't have been more picturesque. But about um, three hours into the day, I'm thinking, well, you know, it's only 13 kilometers to Val Carlos. And... Uh, at the speed we're going, we should have already been there. So I, I catch up to Sirio and um, I said, I, I think there's something wrong here. He says, yeah, I'm starting to feel that I haven't seen any of these places myself. So I got out my compass. I, I came prepared and I'm laying it on Briarley's guidebook map. And I can see in the distance, the valley, the river goes up. And I said, Sirio, we're, we're so far off the Camino right now. Um, that uh, we ended up stopping a farmer, and thankfully, Sirio also spoke French, who said, oh, well, no, Val Carlos is about 20 kilometers in the other direction. 
So as it turned out, we had gone exactly the wrong direction crossing the bridge. And um, by the time we walked all the way back to the bottom and then up the valley the way we're supposed to, I'd walked just shy of 30 kilometers to do that first 13 kilometer stretch. Um, And, you know, my hips were on fire, 35 pound pack. Um, and we, we couldn't help but laugh. And a few minutes later, the door opens and the Portuguese guy comes in because he was a fast walker and went way ahead of us. And he was probably 25 kilometers away from the albergue. And, uh, he knocked on a farm door to say, you know, ask the people where he was and they took pity on him. So the farmer's wife drove him all the way to the albergue in Val Carlos so, you know, it's people laugh and say it's impossible to get lost on the Camino Frances. You know, there's too many arrows, too many everythings. And uh, I'm here to tell you that it's possible. <laughs> We've all been lost. I walked, <laughs> I, I walked 12 kilometers further than I had to. And I thought that was enough. But that's a great story, my gosh. And on the first day of your first Camino, you must have been thinking, what have I got myself in for here? But here you are. It's studying transformative tourism and 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 uh, and really researching and and I might add too, Jordan, providing some terrific insight throughout the course of this interview. I've thoroughly enjoyed speaking with you. Good luck with your studies, and don't hesitate to sing out if I can help in any way. I have met a few and talked to a few pilgrims over the years. I I know a few people who might be able to help you. Thanks so much for taking the time to talk to us. It's been such a pleasure. Buen Camino. A real pleasure speaking with you, Dan. Thanks very much for having me on, and Buen Camino to you too. My guest this week was Jordan Ozero, a Canadian pilgrim, who, as it turns out, is also doing a thesis on transformational tourism. And I'll put a link to his blog in the show notes. Remember, your journey to transformation will include forgiveness. St. Francis of Assisi, who himself walked part of the Camino, said, it is in pardoning that we are pardoned. Thanks again to my Patreon sponsors. I'll be doing an exclusive online concert for my sponsors on Sunday, May the 22nd, which will be Saturday evening, May the 21st in North America and in Great Britain and in Europe. I've put a link in the show notes to take you to the page where you can sponsor me, patreon.com forward slash Dan Mullins. Until next week, thanks for your company. Buen Camino. Buen Camino.